The topics discussed in this show may be triggering or harmful for some listeners. We tackle topics of suicide, self-harm, violence, child abuse, and death. Our hope is that even if you aren't able to listen to the whole story, that you can join us for the first 15 to 30 minutes where we catch up and gossip about our lives and the world. We will be intentional on marking where triggering information may be, as well as having timestamps in our episode descriptions for those topics. Thank you. Welcome back. Welcome back. We got a snack. Mm-hmm. Got a good snack. Got some ham, protein shake, cookies. I have a tostada coming. Black bean mm. tostada. Yum. <gasps> that sounds so good. We've both barely eaten today. So like the food sounds good. We made our own crunch wraps last night. Well, that's so yummy. Yeah. I was really good at folding them, but I couldn't get it to like cook right. So mine fell apart. Taylor's mastered it. Love that. Love that. Well, you can like fold one and then like cut half of one and then put it underneath. So it's like, yeah. we put, we did that. <laughs> we did a good big size like burrito tortilla, mm-hmm. then our stuffing, the tostada shell. Then we put the like veggies and whatnot. And then mm-hmm. we put the tiny tortilla on the top. Mm-hmm. And then we folded it on top of that. But I couldn't get mine to like stay folded. <laughs> she was a thick crunch wrap. Even with that. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh welcome to best friend's guide to money and murder that's claire talking about the crunch wrap hello i'm caroline do you want to hear a sketchy taco bell story yes before we get started my mom has a taco bell story and she's like Claire, you shouldn't get taco bell and do you want me to tell you your short the story of why you shouldn't get taco bell and i just refuse to hear it is it the horse meat no it's a personal thing oh my god i want to know anyway let me know that story until get your mom hi amy amy do i have permission to hear that story let me know so um i was i had gotten done with work at like 8 45 at night on thursday and i was driving to the taco bell because i was like i need food i don't have any food in my body at all i had like a piece of toast and a protein shake which is not good not enough food bad and so i drive to the taco bell by my house i think you know that i'm talking about yeah like sketchy area that just like feels weird because it's like there's abandoned buildings right over there yeah is it the one that's like combined with like a pizza hut it's a kfc but yes yes so it's dark um and it's it's like a spooky it's just spooky i don't like it and so I, i go down there and all the lights around it are off. And I'm like, and I'm so tired just from work that I'm like, am I, am I in the right area? Like I think it was like right in the area, but I was like, did I drive too far? And so I turn in to like get in there and the Taco Bell has black sheets on all of the windows. Why? The lights are on in Taco Bell, but there's black sheets everywhere and all the lights are off. Like I think it might be like one like parking lot light, but that was off. It was all off. Like it looked so scary. And I was like, this is not open. This is not open. Just And it like backs up to like a, a neighborhood. But like, if you didn't know it was a neighborhood, it looks like woods. Yeah. And I was like, I'm getting out of here. <laughs> and I call Eric and I'm like, listen, I just got spooked. I'm tired. I don't know what I'm going to do for food. There's a lot going on. That Taco Bell is out. So never going back there. If it is open and they're just like fixing it, not going back. Mm-mm. No, thank you. Mm-mm. 
So my, um, my story today is interesting. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, it's a story of Diane Downs. Okay. Have you heard her? It kind of sounds familiar, but I don't know. Makes sense. Um, I think my favorite murder, no, my favorite murder has for sure. And so is, um, and that's why we drink have covered it. Okay. So you've probably heard it, heard it from one of those. Some of my sources are Wikipedia, good old wiki. <laughs> my like whole story today is pretty much just from Wikipedia. Like I've confirmed a lot of it, but like my initial process is to go through like the Wikipedia page and like note that all and then like go mm-hmm. in and change and fill in as needed. Mm-hmm. But I did that with the whole Wikipedia page and then it was like 11 pages. I love that for you. We're going to get through it. Everyone will get, hold hands. We'll get through it together. So <laughs> we have Wikipedia. We have Inside Edition did an interview with her and it was their first episode back okay. in like 1989, which is so cool. And then OregonLive.com ran a story on her. She, like it all kind of happened in around Oregon. So, so Diane, Miss Diane was born in Phoenix, Arizona in 1955. Okay. So now she's like 64 years old. Yeah. Between 64 and 66 years old. She was born to parents Wesley Linden and Willadin Fredrickson. What a name. Yes. She did say that when she was 12 years old, her dad abused her. Oh. So she graduates from Moon Valley High School in Phoenix, where she meets her husband, Steve Downs. After high school, she enrolls at a Bible college in California, but she's expelled after a year for promiscuous behavior. That would be me if I went to a Bible school. (laughs) And she returns to her parents' home in Arizona. November 13th, 1973, she marries Steve Downs after running away from home. So she's only like 18-ish at this point. Wow. Something like that. I'm not going to do that math because my brain is tired. 1974, her first daughter, Christy Ann, is born. That's a pretty name. It's really cute. 1976, Cheryl Lynn is born. Another good one. Another solid one. And then in 1979, her child, Stefan Daniel, Danny, um, was then born too. Uh, Later, uh, it was discovered that he was born because of an affair. So good old Steve finds this out. And then divorces her in 1980. Okay. Okay. May 8th, 1982, she gives birth to a daughter through surrogacy okay. named Jennifer and then turns her over to her intended parents. Oh, she was a surrogate. She was a surrogate. Okay. She gets pregnant a lot, by the way. Okay. Just to give a small, again, just like a small timeline before we really dive in. 1984, she's arrested and charged for what she did, which we'll get into. She's crazy, dude. Okay, so... 1989, she does an interview with Inside Edition. She said she's always wanted to be a mom. She claimed Steve wasn't thrilled when she first told him she was expecting. And I quote, I got pregnant when I wasn't allowed to. Oh, no. I'm not going to say he forbade me to get pregnant, but I didn't consult him. I wanted to have children, so I got pregnant without asking permission. So here's the deal. So you, uh, you, so... Are you about to tell me how babies are born, Caroline? No. Okay. You can look that up, sweetie. But you think of this and you're like, oh, so you 
entered into a non-consensual relationship yeah with your husband this was not consentful if it's not consent then what does that mean not going to say it anyway but also like and you know this because you're smart but if your husband's not on the same page about having children you don't have children you talk it out and you work on before you get married having those expectations and what that's going to look like when you do get married or even if you have children before you get married it doesn't fucking matter mm-hmm. but like what your expectations are even if the child is a surprise yeah it's still like okay now that we have a baby and that we've chosen to keep it if you don't just keep it different story totally also cool but if you chose to keep it like what are we going to do now yeah. and there was no a huge she was she was like you know what fuck you <laughs> i'm gonna get pregnant without your permission and then i'm gonna have an affair with somebody else in a couple of years Alrighty. So then inside edition email interviews Steve and he says Diane was a terrible parent and treated the kids like crap. When he found out that Diane got pregnant with Danny because of somebody else, that was it. He was like after like soon after Danny was born, he split. I don't blame him. Like don't blame him. You gotta cut out them toxic people, man. Cut him out. I don't really know who Steve is as a person, but it sounds like he did what he could with what he had. You know what I mean? So after they split, Diane, who is at this current point, a letter carrier for the local post office, she begins, begins an intimate relationship with her married former coworker, Robert Knickerbocker. Knickerbocker. Yes. I feel like that's more common of the last name than it should be. Because I feel like I've heard like different podcasts have people with that last name. Like this is not the first time I've heard it. It's just like I said, it makes me uncomfortable. According to Diane, Robert, who lived in Arizona with his wife, didn't like children, which is important to know. Okay. Important to know. Diane, according to investigators, became obsessed with him. She'd write him letters every day. They would return unopened. He totally fucking ghosted her, dude. We love ghosting by the post office. Robert claimed that Diane was stalking him. I would feel like that's stalking, too. Prior to her arrest, she was okay. So she, yeah, prior to her arrest, she was employed by the post office and would have mail routes all over Oregon, which is also important to note later. She's kind of had a weird thing for this guy. He doesn't like kids. Doesn't want kids. Okay, good. So, on May nineteenth, nineteen eighty three, a call comes in that a woman has been shot, and so have her three children, and she's coming to the hospital. Oh no. That woman is Diane and her three children, Danny, Christy, and Cheryl. Cheryl, unfortunately, passed away when she was seven years old. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Um, Downs had drove them to McKenzie Willamette Hospital in Oregon. Danny, who was three, was paralyzed from the waist down, and Christy suffered a, a stroke. Oh, so for, for a little while, at least, Christy was in a coma. It gets kind of weird, right? She's driving, she drives her children in her blood spattered car. Her arm, she got shot in the arm, things like that. She tells people that she'd been shot by a bushy haired man who tried to steal her car on a desolate road that rainy evening. However, investigators and ho- so, like when a kid dies, I mean, when anyone dies, but when a child, like people are going to fucking investigate it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, no, no one does. But so hospital workers and investigators became very suspicious because they decided her manner was way too calm for a person who has experienced such a traumatic event. 
I hate people who gatekeep how people respond to Right. And I do too, because trauma can make you dissociate and things like that. And I'm hoping there were social workers there that like could see all this. However, however, they were right. What? She had also made a number of statements to both police and hospital workers considered highly inappropriate. It heightened even more when upon arrival to the hospital to visit her children, she called good old Robert uh, on the phone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, she wanted to let her him know that uh, her children were hurt because he doesn't like kids. So she said, so like I said, she thinks, she said that a bushy haired guy did this. I think somewhere also she tried to like say a, a black man did it, all those fun things, which checks out for her personality, right? So forensic evidence did not match her story. It didn't? No. Aren't you so surprised? So surprised. Um, there's no blood spatter on the driver's side of the car, nor was there any gunpowder residue on the driver's door or the interior door panel. So if someone, to give you the painted picture for visual people, if someone were to open the car door or leave it open and like shoot through the window, there would be residue in those areas. But there weren't. Robert also reported, had reported to police that Downs had stopped him, like I said earlier, and seemed willing to kill his wife if it meant that she could have him for him herself. That's too much. She did not disclose to police, Downs didn't, that she had owned a 22 caliber handgun at the time of of the shooting. Um, But good old Steve and Robert sure did. While they were unable to find the actual weapon, they found unfired casings in her home with extractor markings from the murder weapon. So like she had been practicing in her home. Most damaging, she said she drove as fast as she could to get to get children to the hospital. And there was a song playing. I can't remember the song. I really wish I would look it up, but it's fine. She remembers a song playing during it. I'm going to actually look this up. Yeah, I was like, I need to know. Is it Britney Spears? What are we working on? I wish. You're going to flip. Is it Britney Spears? No. I wish. It's by Duran Duran. The song Hungry Like a Wolf. Yeah. While while in the car. So they say, so she said she was speeding. She remembers that song playing, which if we look at a lens social work, like you focus on specific things of trauma. So like you could focus on the song, like when something traumatic is happening. Sure. There are witnesses to her driving and they said they saw her car being driven very slowly towards the hospital at an estimated speed of seven, five to seven miles an hour. I figured you were going to say like five to seven miles under the speed limit. No, five to seven miles per hour. And what's cool, for lack of a better term, is that they were able to find out when the song was playing on the radio to point out like what time this all kind of went down. Okay. Hmm. So all of this to say, investigators were pretty suspicious, but she kept doing and giving interviews about what happened, always denying that she had anything to do with it. There is a video. So there used to be a documentary on either Netflix or Hulu. I can't remember that I watched and I couldn't find it. I think it was a 2020 because there's been a couple 2020s on this, but they show her reenacting like the car stuff. And she's laughing. No. She, like, and I'm going to need you to look that up and look at it. But, like, 
she's like joking around with police officers like oh he he hurt my arm again ha 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 and when she's talking about her children now later she talks about it sounds like a little differently but when you watch interviews of her talking about her children the semantics she uses is very different than how a mother would respond she would be like i'm sorry it happened to them the language she used wasn't taking ownership of her of her own children that's sad yes so the more she talked and she liked to talk a lot and she did really like to talk a lot the more things weren't making any sense and her story changed a lot too the man at first was a stranger had actually called her by name however she denied changing ever changing her account investigators aren't having it okay so in 1984 in february she's arrested at the time she was pregnant with another man's child. That baby was later put up for adoption. She got pregnant with another baby? Yes. So that's what I'm saying. So she, you know what she did? So she's a mail carrier, right? Yeah. So I think this is what happened. And I, this was in the documentary. I don't know if this was this time or if there was another time. But in one case, she goes on her mail route, finds a dude. Hey, you want to have sex with me? He's like, sure. And there was like someone interviewed on her as a, I don't know, but said Diane was very good at getting pregnant. Yeah. She knew her cycle, like the back of her hand. And she knew when she would get pregnant. So she's just like a random guy. She's like, oh, I'm a baby. He's like, oh shit. Okay. 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 All right. So yeah. Okay. Got it. Someone had said how she knew if she got pregnant. The people would look at her and say, how could a woman who loves children and, and is pregnant currently would kill her children? But Diane says that she got pregnant because she missed Christy and she missed all of her other kids so much. You can't replace children, but you can replace the effect they give you. She said that. And they give me love. They give me satisfaction. They give me stability, a reason to live, a reason to be happy. And that's gone. They took it from me. But children are so easy to conceive. So, okay. Okay. All right. Yikes. Yikes. So you're going to replace your children. You're replacing your children. Yeah. Like don't even. Anyway. Anyway. February 28th, 1984. She's arrested nine months after the shooting. Christy wakes up from her coma before the trial. And the minute she wakes up, they like interview her away from her mom. But she's like, mom tried to kill me. Mom killed my sister. That's heartbreaking. She was the only eyewitness as her brother was sleeping during the shooting and Cheryl was murdered. Mm -hmm. She testified in court. She was nine years old. She testified in court that her mother shot her and her siblings. She said that her mom stopped the car, walked to the truck, got something out, then reached in the window and shot her and her siblings. Authorities believe that Diane shot herself in the arm after to make it look like a robbery gone wrong. I have chills. I know. I think I want. Yeah. I'm, oh, me too. Me too. I cannot imagine a nine-year-old walking into that courtroom, held head held high and pointing to her mother saying that her mother shot her. Oh, isn't that incredible? That should not have had to happen, but isn't that kids are resilient. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. So, um, prosecutors argue that shot, that Downs shot her children to be free of them so she could continue her f- affair with Robert, the child hater. 
just kidding. So I'm sure he doesn't hate children. He just didn't want any. I get it. Yeah. As he claimed, as she claimed that he let it be known that he did not want any kids in his life. Again, I fucking get it. Much of the case rested on Christie's testimony. She was then found guilty of murder and attempted murder and sentenced to life in prison plus 50 years. Good thing they put those extra 50 years on there. Mm-hmm. He was diagnosed with narcissism, narcissism, hysteronic, and antisocial personality disorders. In terms of what a hysteronic is, just according to good old Wikipedia, um, characterized by a pattern of excessive attention-seeking behaviors, usually beginning in early childhood, including inappropriate seduction and excessive desire for approval. Checks out. Checks out. Genes play a role. Abuse or instability during childhood also may increase the risk. So there you go. Thanks. And that's also from like the Mayo Clinic. Most of her sentence is to be served consecutively, which is good. Mm-hmm. So the judge made it clear that he did not intend for Downs to ever be free again. Good. So, okay. So that was kind of a while ago, but she's still alive. And um, mm. I've got some info. Learn me that info. I will. So she briefly escaped prison in <gasps> 1987. <laughs> prison escapes are one of my favorite things i know okay so it get just hold on tight okay so i'm gonna come back to that in two seconds so you start that and then not finish that (laughs) i'll get back to that in a second so prior to her arrest she becomes pregnant with her fifth child a girl who she names amy elizabeth a month after her 1984 trial okay so Sweet Baby is seized by the state of Oregon and adopted by Chris and Jackie Babcock, who named her Rebecca. Rebecca has done a 2020 special <gasps> where she talks about finding out her, who her mom is. She's a mom herself. I think she's a single mom. I'm not, I can't remember. She's so cute. Aww. She's like in her 30s. Mwah. She's an amazing story mm-hmm. of resilient i mean it's just wonderful she again it's so cool she yeah. got to meet ann rule oh wow and ann rule wrote ended up writing a book called small sacrifices detailing all this stuff wow um and then there was a made for tv movie starring farrah fawcett wow and 19 that aired in on abc in 1989 becky is so cool and it is important to watch her 2020 special oh can't wait it is really it's just it's really interesting. It's really cool to see someone come up from like from that. And she doesn't talk with the other siblings, Danny and Chris yeah. and Christy. It just sounds like they want to put this all past them mm-hmm. and not, and just, you know, like she was born. So I get it. I really yeah. do. Yeah. So it's really cool. Back to what I was saying. Yes. Okay. So First, you're probably wondering what happened to the sweet baby angels, yeah. Christy and Danny, after after all this. Yeah. The lead prosecutor on the case, Fred Hughie, and his wife, Joanne, adopted both of them in 1986. Oh. Isn't that so sweet? That's so sweet. Like, usually be like, ooh, conflict of interest, but like, no, like, this is, no, that's not even that's a thing at this sweet. point how beautiful is that that's so what good people he just felt so deeply for these kids yeah and just knew like that how much they've been through that they just knew that they Aww. needed to have them 
it was, it's such a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that was all pretty important. So July 11th, 1987, Downs escapes from the Oregon Women's Correctional Center in Salem. She's recaptured just a few blocks away from prison on July 21st. Just going for a stroll? Just going for a stroll. She was found inside of the home of another cellmate's husband, and she received an additional five-year sentence for the escape. After her recapture, Downs was then transferred to New Jersey Department of Corrections, Clinton Correctional Facility for Women, because when Downs escaped, they were terrified that Downs was going to try and find her children. Yeah. Terrified. And that was just too close to home. The Salem prison was like 66 miles away from his home in Springfield. And they were just like afraid for this kiddo's safety. And despite significant security upgrades after the escape, they accepted his argument due to the risk of harm for these babies. So 1994, she's transferred to the California Department of Corrections. She gets her associate's degree in general studies. In December 9th, 2008, she's up for parole. And re- reaffirms her innocence, saying, I have told you and the rest of the world that a man shot me and my children. I have never changed my story. Except for when she did. Except for when she did. The district attorney said she alternately refers to her assailants as a bushy-haired stranger, two men wearing ski masks, or drug dealers, and corrupt law enforcement officials. It's always the corrupt law enforcement officials. Yes. She participated in the hearing. She was not permitted a statement, but answered questions from the parole board, and she was denied. <laughs> Good. Good. December 10th, 2010, second parole hearing. Okay. Again, she was denied parole and under a new law would not be eligible for parole for another 10 years. Good. She would have to wait until 2020 where she will be 65 years old. Did she get paroled? I can't find anything. No, I don't think she got paroled. I wonder because of COVID if it just like how everything's kind of been pushed back with court. If hers got pushed back as well yeah they can still push back parole hearings from my understanding i could be wrong but i don't i think they could still do that so i'm not sure i haven't seen anything no new source no nothing they all say that she could it would be late 2020 and i haven't seen anything okay well if it was late 2020 then it probably got pushed back that's what i'm thinking so 2020 65 years old steve said she has destroyed so many people i think with that one shred of regret I don't think she has ever come to grips with what has happened, the gravity of what has happened. The kids, especially, she destroyed them. Three perfectly innocent children, she destroyed them. Mm. She said herself, I can sit here and cry and be all upset. And what is it going to prove? It proves nothing. I am who I am. I can't be anyone other than who I am. I am not saying anyone has to believe me. I can sit here with a clear conscience and know I didn't shoot my kids. Okay. Okay. So the kids are doing great. They're not children anymore. They're older than us. Christy got married and has a family now. And I haven't done a lot of research on Danny, but it sounds like he's doing doing good. He is still partly paralyzed from from all of that, but it sounds like he's doing good. So and Becky's doing a lot better too. So good. What I did find, just to add a couple little extra nuggets at the end about Diane, she's still alive. Yeah. And she has comments on the c- coronavirus. <gasps> Oh, what does she have to say? All right. Okay, here we go. So this is where the Oregon Live article comes in. She starts out with, did you ever read The Red Death by Edgar Allan Poe? Required reading in, in high school. Once the plague is in the house, there's no avoiding it. So this um, article came out in April of 2020. Mm. She believes that the, the, the virus went through 
where she's at now. So Central California Women's Facility. Um, and she for, survived it thanks to the luck and conscientious, conscientious prison employee. This prison houses like 3,000 inmates it's on lockdown. There's only... There had only been two tested prisoners for COVID-19. Another test came back with a positive result. The online tool lists one person, one prison employee as having tested positive. They, they mentioned that she still maintains that she didn't shoot her children. She says now she follows the news about the coronavirus pandemic as closely as she can from prison and is only concerned about her surviving offspring contracting COVID-19. Every time the world news shows big red circles on the national map, I look at Oregon because that's that's where Christy and Daniel are. I still worry about them and love them, though they'll never know it. So, yeah. So there's also this, like, conspiracy theory that she threw out that, like, someone else was one of the people who shot her husband, or husband, sorry, who shot her children. Jim Haynes, he said, had apparently admitted to shooting the children after finding out about a legal drug operation. Diane's brother states that that could, I think Diane's brother's, like, on her side. Really? Yeah, I don't know. She said that she had it because she was feeling, she had a dry cough, headache, sinuses clogged with inner, yeah, just like sinuses clogged. She felt fuzzy back in March. The supervisor had seen her struggling and told her to go back to bed. She then went to bed, showered, woke up, drank water, then went to sleep. She's like, with what I think others have suffered, I think my boss probably saved my life. She added that the prison has just received a shipment of pre-cut swatches and she started sewing face masks for the kiddos at the children's hospital. How nice of her. She means still maintains her innocence, even though there's stark proof that she killed them. Yeah. Becky remarks on how she contacted Diane and for a while it was it was like um, it was letters back and forth, but for a while it was okay, and then it started getting dicey and then she's like i couldn't stop i couldn't talk to her anymore it was just getting too much that's the story of diane and how she murdered her child and hurt her other two kiddos and all of her other kids that's not messed up messed up if you can handle it like watch her reenact because it's a sight yeah that's a a doozy if you will Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what kind of cookie do you have there I have chocolate chip cookies. I love chocolate chip cookies. I love that for you. They're the Nestle chocolate chip cookies you can get at Price Chopper. Oh, are they like the soft ones? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. They're in like the bakery section. Oh, oh okay. These are so good. Oh, I'm so happy for you. There we go. How was your tostada? Oh, God, it was so fucking good. Good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> so, I'm going to cover the story of Charles Ponzi and the origin of the Ponzi scheme. We're gonna learn today, folks. We're gonna learn. Dude, he's a doozy. Not in like a bad way. Like, I don't have any trigger warnings. Just he's something else. Like, damn. Good. We love that. So, let's start with the definition of what is a Ponzi scheme because we're gonna do some learning. According to the FBI's website, the promise, uh, it is the promise of a high financial return or dividends not available through traditional investments instead of investing the funds of the victims the con artist pays dividends to the initial investors using the funds of subsequent investors 
the scheme generally falls apart when operators flee with all the proceeds or when a sufficient number of new investors cannot be found to allow the continued payment of the dividends. So in kind of simpler terms, you pay early investors with the money from new investors rather than profit and you're not actually investing the money. When I was first researching, it felt very like pyramid schemey to me. So this is how they vary from pyramid schemes. So at their heart, they both prey on unsuspecting people who overpromise results and they're both self-sustaining. In a Ponzi scheme, money is given to an investor when a person when the person wants their money back it is paid back from new investors it ultimately turns into just transferring money between clients with no real investment a pyramid scheme relies on the recruitment of other investors mm-hmm. those investors turn into recruiters and the later investors pay the person that recruited them to be involved with selling a product for profit okay it's literally like a pyramid yeah. like that office episode yeah. <laughs> so it involves bringing in new people and Ponzi schemes kind of have one man at the heart, one person running it. So some of the like typical wording to, to describe the income strategies for Ponzi schemes are hedge fund trading, okay, high yield investment program, okay, or offshore investment. Those are my favorite. So how to know if you're getting got by a Ponzi scheme. Tell me. There's high returns with little or no risk. Okay. Surprise, there's always risks when you invest your money. There are? I know, right? Wait a minute. Oh, <laughs> no. I gotta call somebody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Overly consistent returns is another red flag. Investments go up and down. That's normal. I'm saying this like I know what I'm talking about with money. Yeah, oh, for sure. For sure. It has a secretive or complex, complex strategy. So if you don't understand it don't invest it there and there's of course many others but that's just a few and then how do these end if they're not stopped by the authorities the investment manager or the operator goes into hiding and this is like the ideal situation for the person running it because they run off with all the money goes into hiding yeah oh my god they just take all the money and then they like yeet out to an island and then they're like rich if the amount of new investors slows down or stops to the point where promised returns can no longer be paid out to the older investors or if the market crashes because that causes investors to pull out sooner than expected so they don't have the capital to pay the promised earnings. little FAQ about Ponzi schemes there. That doesn't seem very stable. Mm-mm. Not a really stable plan. We'll learn about how unstable it is through Charles. Okay near the end. So now let's talk about good old Charles. I want to know. So Charles Ponzi was born Carlo Pietro Giovanni Guillermo Tobaldo Ponzi. I like that name better than just Charles. Yeah. Charles was born on March 3rd, 1882. So he's a Pisces. Mm -hmm. He was born in Italy and moved to Boston when he was 21 in 1903. Charles apparently came to America with $2.50 in his pocket, which is the equivalent to coming to the States today with $74 in your pocket. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I have a lot of these conversions because it's just like, the conversion rate like fucked me up on this one because it's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For sure. I feel like it gets worse, so I'm excited. Yeah. So when he was coming to the States, he took a boat 
where he gambled away the rest of his life savings. He told the New York Times that, quote, I landed in this country with 250 in cash and $1 million in hopes. And those hopes never left me. Okay. He's a dreamer. He wants- yeah, you're right. He has big hopes. I'm sorry, you're right. So he learned English pretty quick and worked his way up from a dishwasher to a server, but then was fired for theft from the restaurant and shortchanging customers. And so after not doing well in the United States, Charles decides to move to Montreal, Canada in 1907. Fun. Fun. He got a job as an assistant bank teller at Banco Zarazi. And that bank was started to help the influx of Italian immigrants to Montreal at this time. By this point, Charles had kind of found his rhythm and was considered very charming. And he spoke English, Italian, and French. Mm -hmm. So it was at the Banco Zaraski, Banco Zarazi job that Charles first saw the scheme of robbing Peter to pay Paul. The bank manager and founder, Luigi Louis Zarosi, which I'm just going to call him Luigi. He was paying 6% interest on bank deposits. And at this time, that was double the typical rate for interest payments. Charles worked his way up to being a bank manager, which good for him. Good for him. Mm-hmm. It was then Charles learned about what Luigi was doing and how the bank was in trouble. Luigi had made a bad real estate loan, but instead of using the profits from good investments to pay that off, he was using the money from accounts that were recently open. Oh. Yeah. Okay. But the bank fails and Luigi runs away to Mexico with most of the bank's money. Okay. Yeah. As one does. As one does. So the bank fails and Charles decides to stay in Montreal for a little bit and help Luigi's family that he left, but started planning his return to the States. But Charles had no money because the bank failed. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So he went to a former customer of the bank. The company was called Canadian Warehousing. Once Charles got into the warehouse, there was no one there, but he found a checkbook while looking through the empty buildings. As you do, he wrote himself a check. Sure. For $423.58 and forged the signature for the check. That's so specific. He knew what he was doing. But that would work out to $12,376.34 in 2020. Wow. Amazing. Also, I tracked on some of these uh, a couple different inflation calculators, and some of them basically vary by a couple thousand dollars. But still like a shit ton of money. Yeah. You get the gist. You get the gist. So he cashed the check. Okay. Please for like, uh, no, you don't. (laughs) And so when the police caught him, he apparently held up his wrists and said, I'm guilty. Drama. Drama. He spent three years in prison. He decided he didn't want to tell his mom. Oh, can't tell mommy. Nope. Don't want to get in trouble. Not with mommy. Mm-mm. How old is he again at this point? He would have probably been about mid-20s at this point. And he didn't want someone to tell his mom. Sorry. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. No. Didn't want to tell his mom. I never found the mother's name, but mm-hmm. God, I love this woman. She's funny. God bless the mama. Yes. So he told his mother that he was hired as a special assistant to the warden. Wow. Wow. So he was released in 1911 Mm -hmm. and decided to move back to the United States. Once he was back in the U.S., he got involved with a scheme to smuggle in Italian immigrants to the U.S. He got caught and spent two years in prison in Atlanta. While he was in prison in Atlanta, he became a translator for the warden. And the warden was... Okay. Yeah. 
intercepting letters from Italian mobster Ignacio, quote, the wolf, Lupo. These people. Yeah. Ignacio is suspected of murdering 60 people, extortion, robbery, <gasps> and more. Oh, no. Yes. Oh, okay. So maybe he can call himself the wolf. Who are we to? We'll let, we'll let it slide this time. This time. <laughs> I'm so scared. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. Um, so once he was released from prison, mm-hmm. Charles went back to Boston. He worked as a in a mining town as a nurse. Apparently, he has that skill now. He's reminding me of Holmes. Good old Holmes. Working as a nurse gave him an idea, Caroline. I like that. To go to another mining town and basically started selling an all-inclusive utilities company. <laughs> What? <laughs> Wait, that's the idea that got in his head? Yeah, so he decided to start this company and then he s- sold stock in his company for that company. Mm-hmm. 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 During his time as a nurse, he met another nurse. Pearl got into a severe accident and suffered severe burns. Apparently, Charles did not know her that well, but he volunteered for two major surgeries and donated 220 inches of skin to her. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, of his own. <clears throat> of his own. How do you? Do you want to know how many square feet that is? Yeah, I do. Of course, That's I do. one and a half square feet of skin. Ew, where do you get it from? Uh, I believe it was like, uh, your back typically is how mm-hmm. they do these. Yeah, that fat back though. <laughs> Sorry, it's thick. You'd think with like three seeds because yeah. you need that third seed to give it to her. Honestly. Yeah. Probably the nicest thing he'll ever done for somebody. And that's the part, like, this is, like, a weird tidbit, and I thought about, like, cutting that and, like, some of the bank stuff in Montreal. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that he has this, you know, he stayed in Montreal to help Luigi's family. He did this act of kindness. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what's interesting about this. Mm -hmm. Doesn't make sense. He donated his skin. Donated his skin. Thick with three C's. Good. And those surgeries caused a lung complication, so mm. Charles lost his nursing job. Don't you worry. Don't you worry, though. So he traveled around Boston to work, look for work, but found love. Oh, yay. He met Rose Maria. Oh, Nico. Who was a stenographer. We love to see it. What? It, were, were him and Holmes brothers? I know. My goodness. Pearl? In the home story. I'm spooked. Ooh, I don't like that. I don't either. I, I hate that more than the skin thing. Like the skin, honestly, after that drama, I could I can like handle it. But yeah. Okay. And he proposed to her. Well, she sounds like a beautiful person, so yes. Uh she was Italian American and her family had a fruit stand, which like precious. That's some, probably some good fucking fruit too. Good for her. Charlie was a little shamed about his time in prison, so he didn't tell Rose or her family about his time in prison. But guess who had something to say about that? Uh-oh. His mom. Yes. She sent a letter to Rose's family about his time in jail. However, they still got married in 1918. She really tried. She really tried. She wasn't going to let him get away with his bu- bullshit. Charles worked a number, a number of odd jobs at the start of his marriage before he had an idea again. His idea was to sell advertisements in a large business listing that you send to other businesses. So Charles wasn't able to sell this idea to another company or other businesses. So pretty quickly that company fails again. 
And so he took over Rose's family's fruit stand. Okay. Apparently, he has a little bit of a common theme because he, he soon after he took over the fruit stand, it failed. Hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he really can't win. He really does not get at business. Here's where his luck does start to turn around, I guess, in some ways. In 1919, Charles acquires a small office in Boston where he decides to write his former friends and acquaintances in Europe to sell them opportunities. Oh. I didn't re- read about what kind of opportunities. I'm going to sell you an opportunity. I'd buy it from you, but you're my best okay. friend, so. You'd have to. I have to. You're legally obligated. Sorry. But yes. A few weeks into his operation, mm-hmm. he receives a letter from Spain. It was asking about an advertising catalog. And inside the envelope was an international postal reply coupon, or an IRC. A coupon? A coupon. 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 <laughs> coupon. This is a coupon that can be exchanged for postage. Someone in one country could pay for someone's response letter in a different country. Mm-hmm. So you're basically just prepaying postage. Mm-hmm. But in the form of a coupon. Nice. So, however, it was buying postage in the home country's currency. If the price of postage was greater in a home country of the recipient, there was a chance for profit. Okay. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, after World War One, these could be bought in Italy for low prices and then exchanged for stamps in the U.S. for an increased value and then sold. Here's where Charles saw his chance for profit. And he collected the profit of these transactions. And after expenses and exchange rate, he was apparently making 400% profit off of these. Oh my God. Yeah. So as illegal as this may seem, buying something in a cheaper market and then immediately turning around, turning it around and selling it at a higher market is legal. Mm -hmm. But to get this underway, he needed a large amount of capital, which because he fucked over Rose's fruit stand, didn't have it. What did Rose ever do to you, you piece of shit? I know. He first tried to borrow money from the bank, but they were like, absolutely not. (laughs) Get away from us. So Charles decides to try and get help from the public and sets up a stock company to raise money from the masses. Okay. He started talking to his friends and promised that they would double their investment in 90 days. Pretty soon after he got investors, it went from being double investment in 90 days to being doubling their investment in 45 days at 50% interest. Okay. So people were receiving $750 of interest on a $1,250 investment. So in 1920, Charles opens his own securities exchange company to continue to grow his scheme. And here's where the net, what is now called the Ponzi scheme begins. The first month of his securities exchange company Charles had 18 people sign up, totaling $1,800, mm-hmm. which in 2020 would be $123,513.75. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. All 18 investors were paid off within a month. Wow. And they were paid with the new investors' monies, not profit. The company quickly grew, and Charles hired agents to work under him. On generous commissions. So from February 1920 to March of 1920, the total investment number grew from $5,000 to $25,000. Okay. 
which is the equivalent of going from $64,702.75 to $323,513. So that's a lot of growth. That's a lot of money. Yeah. By just swishing it. Just everywhere. swishing it. Hopping it around. Yeah. And so by July of that year, Charles was making a million dollars a week. Ugh. And by the end of the month, it was closer to a million dollars a day. <laughs> so $1 million then would be $12,940,550 now. That's a lot of money. That's so much money. Drink every time we say that is a lot or that's so much money because my goodness. That's $12 million a day. Oh my gosh. I didn't even process that. Yeah. I I don't have anything to say to that. He started investing his money into a a single bank. He was trying to get a, a large enough account to be able to control the bank and potentially become the president of the bank. Okay. So Charles and his friends were able to buy controlling interest in the bank for $3 million, which is the equivalent of $38,821,650 now. Think of all the banks Jeff Bezos could buy. Think of all the people Jeff Bezos could help. T. T. Charles's victims were primarily not taking their investments profits, but they were reinvesting it with Charles. Though on paper, the company was showing great losses because Charles was making no real money, or he was making no real effort to legitimize the investment and was just paying investors with the money of other investors. But at one point, he did try and make it legitimate and bought a macaroni company and part of a wine company to try and earn legitimate profits, Mm. which why wouldn't you just buy a macaroni company, buy a wine company, and call it a day, you know? That's all you need. I don't know. I don't know. I have no idea. So Charles's scheme grew so large that even prominent, like, Boston socialite families were investing mm-hmm. with Charles, and then mm-hmm. 75% of the Boston police force had invested with him. <laughs> nice. Uh, there was a banker from Lawrence, Kansas, that invested $10,000 with him, which would be $129,405. Wow. Now, here's where the problems start to come in. Charles didn't have any way to turn the international reply coupons into cash. So for those first initial $1,800 investment, he would have had to have 53,000 coupons to have a profit. Mm -hmm. And because his company was growing so quickly, he would have had to fill a Titanic-sized boat with coupons to pay his investors back but people kept returning to reinvest so his lavish lifestyle caused people to have some suspicion a boston writer alleged that charles couldn't be doing what he was doing basically and charles sued him for libel Mm -hmm. which libel is if someone publishes in writing harmful words he ended up winning five hundred thousand dollars wow yeah he was also sued by a furniture maker okay uh because charles didn't pay for some furniture which you got to pay people the furniture maker's lawsuit was unsuccessful but prompted the question of how did charles go from penniless to millionaire so quick Mm -hmm. on july 24th 1920 the boston post wrote a very favorable 
favorable article about Charles and his company. And this brought investors to Charles at a rapid rate. Like when I say rapid, I mean like in the thousands. Oh, oh, wow. Okay. And they lined the blocks outside of his office. So they wrote this great article about Charles, and but the editor of the Post, Richard Grozer, assigned a reporter to investigate Charles. Just be like, check this homie out. Nice. On July 26th, the Post published a more critical piece on Charles, and it had a whole bunch of questions about Charles's operation. And then they had a journalist, Clarence Barron, who was also the head of the Dow Jones and Company, investigate Charles. So then investors now panic, lined up outside the office, but Charles went out and got him donuts and reassured them and brought them coffee. It's like a pizza party. Yeah, he was like, don't worry, it's chill. We got donuts, we got coffee, we're fine. I'm taking care of you so well, I got you donuts. But to be fair, if a man brought me donuts, I'd be like, okay. That's how they get, that's how they get you. It really is. But honestly, it's all I want, so it's okay. Clarence, the guy, the Dow Jones guy, mm-hmm. noticed in his investigation that Good old Charles was not investing in his own company. <laughs> he also noted that for the numbers to add up, there would need to be 160 million of the IRCs in circulation. So Caroline, take a guess about how many were actually in circulation. Two. Close. 27,000. Oh, that was not good. <laughs> You're so kind to me. Okay, well, that's more than way more than I thought. Okay. Still not 160 million, which is what Charles needed. I don't know. That's like comparing two to. Got it. Okay. Got it. Good. So then Clarence noted that for it to be working the way Charles claimed it would, he would be profiting for the government. I feel like I have to know Clarence said that was immoral and had an objection. So then enter Daniel Gallagher, a United States district attorney. He had Edward Pride audit Charles's books. But Charles's books were just investors' names on note cards. Okay. 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 How are you going to edit that? But all right. Got it. Got it. Can you Um, edit my notes for me? Like my... (laughs) Can you just edit my note cards? Yeah. Okay. Audit, not edit. Sorry. Oh. Oh, oh, oh. that changes things. Yeah. Can you audit my... Your note cards? Yeah. (laughs) On it. Perfect. So Charles was a little panicky and hired a publicist, William McMaster, but William found a bunch of documents that incriminated Charles and showed that he was robbing Peter to pay Paul. Way later, William came forward and described Charles as a financial idiot that didn't know how to add. Damn, okay. (laughs) So then... William went to Richard, the editor of the Post, with this information. He was paid $5,000 for this information, and the story ran on August 2nd, 1920. The article detailed Charles was claiming $7 million in liquid funds, when in reality had he was $2 million in debt, with interest that was closer to $4.5 million, which today, that would be $90.5 million in liquid funds, with it being like $25 million in debt but that being closer to $58 million in debt. Mm -mm. Yeah. Oh my God. Unreal money. Unreal money. Unreal debt. (laughs) Unreal debt. Oh my God. (laughs) $58 million in debt. Holy crap. (laughs) Things were bad for Charles. 
Oh, were they? I couldn't tell. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If an investor was to pull out, that would exa- exhaust the reserve fund that Charles had. Mm-hmm. It had the potential to bring down the entire Boston banking system. Like, bring it to its knees. Like, the, oh, the no. whole city system. So unstable. <laughs> so unstable. That's how, like, you know, we were talking about this. You were like, this doesn't feel stable. That's how unstable it was. That it right. would bring a city's banking system down. Oh, my God. Isn't that crazy? That's insane. So on August 9th, it was reported, the story ran on August 2nd, it was reported that enough investors had withdrawn their money and Charles was 100% overdrawn. So he was out of liquid funds. So it was also on that day, the Massachusetts Attorney General announced that there were no evidence to back up what Charles was claiming he could do. Mm -hmm. They also received a preview of the audit and the audit showed that it was actually $7 million in debt. So that would be um, like $90 million in debt. And on August mm-hmm. 11th, the Post published a front page story detailing all of Charles's criminal activity, including everything in Montreal. Mm-hmm. So basically, kind of an arrest was looming and Charles turned himself in. Good. So he was charged with mail fraud. And released on $25,000 bail, but then immediately was rearrested and charged with larceny. He was released on an additional $10,000 in bail. Kind of what happened in terms of the Boston system, Charles's crimes were so large that it brought down six banks. Investors received less than 30 cents on the dollar. In total, they lost about $20 million, which would be about $258 million now. That's so much money. Oh, dear. Oh, that, like, makes your stomach hurt. So Charles was charged with 86 counts of mail fraud. And remember good old Rose? Love Rose. Uh, She urged Charles to plead guilty. So he pled guilty to one count. Get you a lady, am I right? Yeah. The judge said before sentencing Charles, he was a man with all the duties of seeking large money. He concocted a scheme which, on his counsel admission did defraud men and women it will not do to have the world understand that such a scheme as that can be carried out without receiving substantial punishment Mm. so he was sentenced to five years in prison and after serving three and a half years in prison charles was released but then immediately charged again with 22 state counts of larceny in massachusetts okay and that was a five-year federal sentence nice oh so the five-year sentence that he was serving and released on was federal and this was state charges these charges were a surprise for charles as he thought that because he struck his deal that if he pled guilty to the federal charges that he wouldn't face any state charges Scooby. and so he sued the state claiming double jeopardy the case made it all the way to the supreme court mm. in 1922 they ruled that a federal plea had no standing in state charges they also said because he was being charged with larceny, not mail fraud, it was not double jeopardy. Mm-hmm. So in October of that year, he was tried on the first 10 counts of larceny, where he served as his own attorney. He was so charming that the jury found him not guilty on all 10 counts. <gasps> yeah, but that was only the first 10 counts. In the second trial, the jury deadlocked, and so he got a third trial, and they found him guilty and then sentenced him to seven to nine years in prison. Okay. 
after three years, Charles was released on bail where he appealed his conviction. Mm -hmm. While on bail, he launched new business selling small bits of land, some of them being underwater. Oh my gosh. And promised a 200% return in 60 days. In 1926, he was charged in Florida for violating security laws. He was found guilty and was only sentenced to a year in prison. He appealed his own conviction and was freed on $1,500 of bail, where he then went to Tampa, where he shaved his head and grew a mustache and tried to flee back to Italy. Oh. Yeah. Okay. He was captured in New Orleans, and he was advocating to be deported back to Italy, but both Calvin Coolidge and Benito Mussolini ignored his plea. Oh, no. So he was taken back to Massachusetts to finish his sentence, where he served seven more years. He was released in 1934. He was ordered to be deported back to Italy. He tried to do a few schemes in Italy, but nothing came of him. He eventually got a job in Brazil working for an Italian airline. Okay. But World War II kind of ruined that. Mm -hmm. Charles became a writer and tried to write his autobiography. Nothing came of that. Mm. So he stayed in Brazil where he was living in poverty for most of his life. In 1941, he had a heart attack. Mm. Weakened him a lot, but didn't kill him. By 1948, he was almost completely blind, and he had a brain hemorrhage that left him paralyzed in his right leg and arm. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And so on January 18th, 1949, Charles died in the hospital in Brazil. They never figured out where the money went, just that he handled millions. He was quoted in his last day saying, even if they never got anything for it, it was cheap at that price. Without malice, a forethought. I'd given them the best that was ever staged in their territory since, since the landing of the pilgrims. It was easily worth 15 million bucks to watch me put the thing over. And that is the story of Charles Ponzi and the origin of the Ponzi scheme. You gotta admit, the guy had an interesting brain. Yeah, he really did. He definitely thought outside of the box, but just like a little too much. <laughs> just a smidge too far. Just a skosh. But he tried. He did the most. He decided those were his morals and he was going to stick to it. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Good job. That's a lot of money in my head. That's crazy. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm. You can find all of our links at Linktree slash BF Guide to MM. Uh, Linktree is spelled L-I-N-K-T-R period E-E. And then the slash that's all I got, friend. What do you got? Honestly, that's all I got too. I think we're both ready to eat some eat some food. Taylor just got home with cheese. Claire's gonna eat some cheese. I'm gonna eat some pizza and watch Ghost Adventures with Madeline. I'm very excited. So thanks again for listening. And I hope that you guys have a great week. Mm -hmm. And and be good and be safe. And wear a fucking mask.